in this lesson tonight, there's going to be some instruction. There's going to be a little bit of application, but mostly I believe what you'll receive is encouragement. Because what you're going to learn is that everything you experience, you've experienced, and you will experience, so is Jesus. And because he knows what, it, what it's like, he knows how to pray for you. And so I believe tonight is going to give you a lot of in, um, encouragement as well as some instruction and application. So I always like to start off with just a little Bible study nugget because I love to teach the Bible and I love to teach how to study your Bible. So I just want to talk about cross-references. When you study your Bible, we're going to look tonight in Hebrews, and I'm sorry that's not a great picture, but I was getting a shadow standing straight over it. But in the margins, in the center margins of your Bible, for almost every verse, there are some other little things listed in really small print. And if you get out your glasses and look at them, those are the cross-references. So what that means is those are other places in the Bible where that same topic is mentioned. So we're going to be looking at Hebrews um, 4, 14 through 16. And so in the margin, it told me where else I could go to learn about those verses, where else. That, that it's mentioned in the Bible. And so that's another way that you can study your Bible. So the outline for tonight, I'm going to have a brief introduction. And I'm not going to jump into John immediately. Yes. Very quickly. Yes, it is. And we'll get there. Yeah. Thank you. you you are ahead of the game. We're going to get there. But we're going to look from the book of Hebrews that Jesus had to become a human like us to be our high priest. We're going to look back at a prophecy in Isaiah that tells what Jesus would go through. And then we are going to look at a couple examples of Jesus' humanity from the book of John. And then next week, mostly we'll be looking at the book of John and other examples of Jesus' humanity. So why is this important? A couple weeks ago, I was beating myself up because I have a love-hate relationship with my personality. There are times when I love it, and there are times when I hate it because I'm, a, I'm very organized, I'm a bit controlling, a little anxious, I'm a little OCD, and, and it's kind of hard to book an appointment with me. I'll just say because I like my calendar, it's the same. Carrie Newhoff says in his leadership podcast to have your ideal work week. And I have my ideal work week. And if we're not meshing on those days when I set up for lunches and coffees, it's just hard to book with me. And there was one day I was beating myself up for it. You know, God, why can't I just have coffee on a Monday? Because that's usually my day at home to recover. But I was beating myself up. And, and I ended up just going to the Lord after beating myself up for about a good 15 minutes. And I said, Jesus, what is wrong with me? And he said, you're human. You're human. I was like, oh, okay. I'm human. I'm okay. This is just humanity. I'm not going to be perfect and able to do everything until I'm with you, Jesus. So that's why it's important, because we beat ourselves up for a lot of things that's just our humanity. It's not an excuse, but it's part of who we are, and Jesus understands it. So as John was saying, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Sometimes I wonder, God, was there any other way? You know, God's a creative God. There had to be some other way that he could have saved the world and reconciled his people to himself. I mean, he's creative. He could have done anything. But Jesus chose to become flesh. Go ahead, Gregory. Jesus was God. But as a man who walked the earth in a frail human body, Jesus experienced all that we experience. Jesus was disliked, even hated, a disappointment, not good enough. He wasn't attractive. He was overlooked. He was disrespected. He was rejected. He wasn't tolerated. He was excluded. He was inadequate. He was judged. He was falsely accused. He was misunderstood and he was betrayed, and in his flesh he died an excruciating death for you and me. 
That is what Jesus went through for us. He chose. He chose to lay aside his privileges, as it says in Philippians 2. He laid aside his privileges. He laid aside glory. He laid aside being in heaven. He laid aside being with his Father, and he chose to become flesh so he could be our high priest. So tonight we're going to talk about what a high priest is. And the book of Hebrews, it's, it's very intellectual. It's a little hard to understand, but when you get in there and delve deep, you'll get the picture. And just like there's what we call the Romans road, I call this the Hebrews road. And the book of Hebrews, more than any other book in the Bible, transformed my life. Because I lived a very wanton life before I came to Jesus, and I have a lot of things to be ashamed about. But once I realized that Jesus, with his one offering, paid for all my sin for all time, I was a changed woman. And so I'm going to share a little bit of that with y'all tonight. So what is a high priest? So the high priest were Levites. And they were also descendants of Aaron. They were anointed, ordained, and they were consecrated to serve God in the tent of meeting and then later in the temple. They made offerings for the people so their sins would be forgiven. So Jesus is our high priest, and he sacrificed himself on behalf of our sins. So if you will, turn with me to Hebrews 2. You'll see me smiling because I get so excited about Hebrews. So Hebrews 2, verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So you know that I like to study... I like to study using what I call the five W's and an H, who, what, when, how, where, why. So if you look at that verse, Hebrews 2.17, you'll see a few of those components. First of all, Jesus is the who. What? He had to be made like us. Had to be made like us. How? How describes, that's an adverb phrase. It describes how Jesus was made. That's the verb. How was he made like us? In all things. In all things. Why? Two reasons. To become a merciful and faithful high priest and to make propitiation for our sins. So he had to be made like us. And then if you'll go down to the next verse, so because of this, it says, For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. So Jesus was tempted so he can help us come to our aid when we are tempted. So we're going to jump now to Hebrews 4. And I am having a few problems with my phone. So if the slides go back and forth, they're moving from my phone but not changing here. But Hebrews 4, 15. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things, there it is again, that all things, as we are yet without sin. So this has always been a little mind-boggling to me. How could Jesus be tempted? How can he understand temptation and just our fallen humanity being prone to sin, but yet he didn't sin? So we're going to look at that a little bit. So the word tempted in the Greek means to try or test one's faith, virtue, or character. Some of you today just driving to church, you were tempted. (laughs) Your character was tested. But it's also, it's by enticing to sin. So if you were enticed to yell, idiot, then you were tempted. You were enticed to sin. So I have an illustration. I don't have a lot of props tonight. But I do have an illustration. 
So I'm going to do a brief Bible trivia quiz. And I had to consult my son to get the correct answer and Pastor Tom to get the right answer for this. So if you don't know it, don't feel bad. I didn't really either. But it's a fun question. So the question is, in the Old Testament, what year or close to it did King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon conquer and burn Jerusalem and take the rest of the Jewish people into exile? I've got 576. I've got 586. So there were a few different exiles from my understanding, but the final one, um, the reference is 2 Kings 25, 9 through, 25 verses 9 through 12. And that occurred in 586. So, Pastor Michael, you get to come on down. You're the next contestant on The Price is Right. You won the prize. And y'all know, y'all know I like to use chocolate as a prop. I'm still eating those M&Ms. But look at this. This is four 3.5-ounce 70% lint chocolate bars. This is like $9 at Sam's Club. This is a valuable prize. I'm going to protect it and make sure none of my kids get it. Yes, protect it. So, I want to just talk about some potential thoughts that you might be having right now based on our tendency to sin. The first one, selfishness says, I want the dark chocolate bars. That's what selfishness says. It's all about me. I say that a lot in my house, but it's a joke, right, honey? It's all about me. Selfishness. I want the dark chocolate bars. Self-pity. Oh, wrong one. Self-pity says, I never get the dark chocolate bars. I never win anything. I always lose. But then jealousy says, I should have the dark chocolate bars, not them. It doesn't rejoice with them, but it should be me and not them. Gosh. Pride says, they got the dark chocolate bars, but I'm smarter than they are. I mean, he might have known that, but I know this and this, and I got this degree, and I got that qualification, and I've done this, and I've done this, and I'm smarter than him. That's just a lucky break. That's what pride would say. Gluttony says, I'm going to eat a lot of dark chocolate bars when I get home. That's what gluttony would say. I'm going to feed my flesh. Bitterness says, I hate them because they got the dark chocolate bars. It goes from resentment all the way up through hatred to bitterness. Greed says, I want all the dark chocolate bars. I want them all. And then rebellion says, I'm leaving because I didn't get the dark chocolate bars. So you see how just in, our, in the thoughts, you didn't even have to do anything. You didn't have to rob a store or slap somebody or steal anything. But just in our thoughts, we have a tendency to sin because it's often all about us. All of those sentences had an I in it. It's all about us. So these are temptations to sin. And I don't really know the line between where the temptation ends and where the act of sin begins. But my personal belief is that the first thought is not sin. The first thought is a temptation that comes flying through your head. It's the flaming arrow of the evil one. Sometimes you think, where did that come from? Well, it's a temptation. Ephesians 6, 16 says, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Temptation is one of those flaming arrows. And it becomes sin when we allow the temptation to become action, when we dwell on it, when we ruminate on it over and over, when we rehearse our jealousy and our pride and our bitterness and our greed when it becomes action. James 1.14 is another, oops, it's not on the slide, is another cross-reference. It says, but each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed 
by his own, by his own lust, lust. So we all have that temptation to sin. We all have those sinful thoughts that barrage us from right and left all day long. And then we have things that we see with our eyes on the internet, in stores. Temptation is everywhere. But we can capture those thoughts and choose not to agree with them, not to partner with them, not to act on them. So the best defense against giving in to temptation is to flee at the first suggestion. So there's an area where my husband and I have been very open with each other, and that is when we see a beautiful creation that God has made of the opposite sex. So if Brian is driving home from work and he sees a beautiful woman in a red convertible in the lane next to him, he's, he might see her the first time. And what I say is the first look is free. You can admire and you can say, wow, that's a beautiful person. But when you look again, the second look, I believe, is sin. When I was on my way here tonight, there was a, a built man on a bicycle in his, like, Speedo pants next to me. The first look is free. I can admire and say, wow, he works out. But I shouldn't look again, right? And he and I are open about that. And I'll admit, there are, there are times I take a second look. There are. And then I repent. God, I'm sorry. I had no business looking at that person a second time because I'm in union. Now, even if you're, even if you're single and you're not married, you still have to be careful because that second look can lead you into sin. It can lead you into lust. can lead you down a bad pathway. But the first look is free. The second look is sin. And so that's an example of fleeing at the first suggestion. You see it and you say, I'm not looking at that again. When you're in the mall and you see the scantily clad ads, well, the first look you couldn't help. But if you look back, that's, I believe that's sin. So you have to be careful with that. Another cross-reference, 2 Corinthians 10.5, we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And that's what we do. We take these thoughts, and sometimes you just have to say, Jesus, help me. Jesus, help me. Cry out for help. And I think that is what Jesus would have done in this situation with Pastor Michael getting the prize dark chocolate bars. So I don't have this on your handout, but I just want to read through this. What Jesus might would have thought How would Jesus respond? Well, unselfishness would say, I wanted him to be blessed with those dark chocolate bars. I mean, did any of you sit there and say, I hope somebody else gets it? No, you probably thought, I hope I know. You couldn't eat, yeah. There you go, there you go. So gratefulness would say, you know, I've already been blessed with so many dark chocolate bars. If Mike's a real Christian, he'll share it with us. He might. Self-sacrifice. Self-sacrifice would say, I'm so happy that they have the dark chocolate bars. Humility would say, wow, he is so smart. Wow, God's blessed him. He's studying. He's smart. Forgiveness would say, in Jesus' name, I forgive him that he got the dark chocolate bars. That's what forgiveness would say. Generosity would say, I want to give somebody some dark chocolate bars. Self-control would say, I don't need to eat any dark chocolate bars. And contentment says, this dark chocolate bars illustration is awesome. I'm staying for the rest of the message. And when you look at those things, when I looked at them all, what I see is Jesus was God-focused and others-focused. There's not a, there wasn't a me in there. God-focused and others-focused. To Jesus, other people mattered more than he himself mattered. And before God, he was thankful and he was humble. So it wasn't about him. It wasn't about him. It was about God 
and it was about others. And anytime you're in ministry, it's not about you. It's about giving glory to God and ministering to the people. You have to take yourself out of the whole equation. It's not about you. So to be like Jesus and not fall into sin when we're tempted, we need an attitude of gratitude and a perspective of being others-focused. So I had to also think of Jesus in the church potluck line. I'm like, okay, he was human like us. I mean, he probably went to communal meals, and they all sat around, and sometimes there's just that last piece of something. And imagine if Jesus was in the church potluck line, and there was the last piece of Miss Addie's fried chicken. The very last piece. It was a big, juicy thigh. Would Jesus take it? He would multiply it, praise the Lord. He'd produce a miracle. That's good, Marlene. Yeah. But he, I believe Jesus would say, you know, I'm thankful that I've experienced Miss Addie's fried chicken before, and I want to let somebody else have it. To Jesus, other people mattered more. Other people mattered more to Jesus. And I believe that's how he could live a life and not sin, because his eyes were on God, and his heart was for others. He wasn't in anything for himself. Other people mattered more. We've seen more than his own safety, more than his comfort, more than his hopes and dreams, more than his security, more than his reputation, more than his own life. Other people mattered more. So application would be Philippians 2, 3. And this is a passage that's about Jesus. It says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. That's just what Jesus did. Other people mattered more. So I believe Jesus was born human. He was capable of sin. He was tempted just like we are. But he was able to remain holy because he was God-focused and others-focused. But what I want you to get is that he understands the struggle. He was an I. (laughs) You know, he had a self, a human body that craved things and wanted things. But he was able to overcome that. So I want to read one more time Hebrews 2.18. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. And then Hebrews 4.15. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. So this word sympathize in the Greek, means to have compassion on. It means with feeling, with feeling, to have compassion. And this word weaknesses, I love to look at it in the Greek because it means strengthless, strengthless. It can also mean um, needing strength of body and soul, But Jesus sees where you need strength. That word weaknesses has a bad connotation, but it's where you need strength. Right now I have a little weakness in my arms. It's where I need strength. It's where I'm doing exercises to gain strength. But Jesus looks at your life. He sees where you need strength. He has compassion on you because he's been in that position of needing strength himself. He can sympathize with what it's like to need strength in every area of your life. He's moved with compassion for you. So what are your weaknesses? Is it insecurity? Is it feeling rejected? Is it a food addiction? Where do you desperately need strength? Where do you need strength? Jesus understands. He's been in that position of weakness before. And so then we're going to move to my favorite verse, Hebrews 4, 16. And that should be on your handout. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence 
to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And we went over this verse in the, the very first week, but what I want you to see is the context of it. Because Jesus understands where you need strength. Because Jesus knows what it's like to be tempted. Because Jesus knows the pull of sin. Oh, wow. He understands. You can draw near. So let's look at, this is what I went over before, but this five W's and an H. Who? Us. Now what can we do? This verse starts with a therefore. Because Jesus can sympathize with where we need strength. Therefore, because of that, we can draw near. Where? To the throne of grace. Not a throne of judgment or correction or instruction or I'm going to slap you around until you get it right finally. But it's a throne of grace. Grace is God's kindness for undeserving people. Draw near to this throne of God's kindness. How? With confidence. With confidence. So many times we just drag ourselves before the Lord because we're so guilty and so ashamed and we don't know if he's going to respond or love. Just like my dog, she never knows all day long if she's safe. When she sees me, she cowers and Joshua's done some dog sitting. He knows she wets the floor and she shakes because she never knows if she's safe. She submits until you scratch her behind her ears, and then she stands up, and she's like, okay, you're not going to hurt me, because she was abused before we had her. But with Jesus, you don't have to cower. You don't have to shake. You don't have to wonder, does he like me still today? He always welcomes you to his throne of grace, so you can come forth with confidence. Why? (laughs) Because we need strength, because we're weak. And at that throne, we receive mercy and we find grace because we need help, grace to help. When? In time of need. In time of need. I love that. That's why I took that picture of that in my Bible. It's boxed around and highlighted, and and I love it. So what is confidence? Confidence is free and fearless confidence, cheerful courage, boldness, and assurance. But what I love is the root word. It means freedom in speaking. I think of Esther when she went before the king. She was free in speaking. She had confidence. With my husband, I'm free in speaking. I have a good relationship with Pastor Tom so I can go go to him in the cafe and say, I want to start on time because I have confidence before my pastor. I know his heart. I'm not scared of him. And so I probably should have said, sir, I would like to start on time. But I've got confidence with him. I did say please afterwards. <laughs> there is no fear in confidence. And so that is how we can approach the throne of grace, with confidence. There's no fear there. And so my personal belief from studying this book of Hebrews is that if you feel shame for your sins and your failures when you enter God's presence, then you don't fully know Jesus as your high priest. And I know that high priest term is kind of big and a little nebulous, but I've studied it out. And if you still feel ashamed, you haven't fully grasped that. I mean, when we sin, immediately afterwards, we're going to say, I'm sorry, But if the next time you go to worship, you're still carrying that I'm sorry, you just haven't received the payment for all of your sin, even that one. So that is something I don't want to commit to any more Bible studies, but I would just love to teach Hebrews again. Right, Arlene? I've taught it twice already. But yeah, that's what changed my life, was knowing that Jesus understands And I can come before him with confidence. So the next verse in the Hebrews road, hopefully it's on your handout, Hebrews 5, 1 and 2. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided since he himself also is beset with weakness. 
So Jesus is our high priest, and I don't have all those verses to show you, but he is a high priest, and so this verse applies to him as well. He himself was also beset with weakness. And so if you're ignorant and misguided, praise the Lord. It means he can deal gently with you. Don't you know Holy Spirit is gentle? He's gentle. He's not a bulldozer convicting Holy Spirit. He's gentle. He comes in with grace. He's gentle. He can deal gently. He's not harsh. Jesus was human, beset with weakness. So here's the summary from the Hebrews road. Hebrews 2.17. Jesus was made like us in all things. Hebrews 4.15. Jesus was tempted like us in all things. Hebrews 5.2. He himself also is beset with weakness. So if you ask, why was Jesus a human? So the next slide is going to be a summary of everything I've put together from these passages. And I know it's a bad slide, small font. So why? So he could be our merciful and faithful high priest. So he can help us when we're tempted he can sympathize, have compassion on our weaknesses. We can draw near to that throne of grace with confidence. I think that's just the best part, with confidence, because he knows. Jesus knows what it's like. And that, that throne, he can give us mercy, grace, and help. And he can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided. Now, I don't know about y'all, but that just makes me feel better. I'm human, and it's okay that I'm human. I'm not always going to be human, praise the Lord. One day I'm going to have a glorified, perfected body and no more weaknesses, no more temptation, no more sin. And I'm going to be with Jesus and give him glory. But Jesus knows what this is like. He knows what it's all like. All right, so let's turn to Isaiah 53. Isn't that good news? Does that make y'all feel better? <laughs> it helps me. Oh, my gracious. It helps me. So Isaiah 53 is, a, is prophecy that Isaiah wrote to Judah before they were taken into captivity in 586 B.C., and in prophecy, sometimes it's written for the prophet's own time, and sometimes it's for a, a later time. It's like I've shown you before, now and later. It's for now and later. And Isaiah 53 is messianic, a messianic prophecy, and it's about Jesus. And I'm not going to read every verse, but we're going to read quite a few of them. And I am going to kind of tell you like 53 verse 2b, which means the second half of the verse. A means the first half, and that's just for the sake of time. So, I want you to see through these verses how Jesus knows what it's like to be human. Isaiah 53, we're going to start with verse 2b, the second half. He had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. So, Jesus was not attractive. If you go on the internet, you can Google something called the golden ratio, which is like the perfect proportions for a face, for it to be beautiful. And George Clooney evidently is like 9.98 out of 10. But Jesus was not attractive. He would not have graced the cover of GQ. He probably wouldn't have drawn my attention in the car next to me. He was not attractive. No stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. There was nothing in Jesus that was a magnet in his appearance for people. The NIV commentary said his true intrinsic beauty was hidden from people because they looked at him from an entirely human standpoint. And a cross-reference would be 
1 Samuel 16, 7, because we know that David was also judged in the same way. It says, but the Lord said to Samuel concerning David, do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature because I have rejected him. That was about one of his brothers. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, excuse me, but the Lord looks at the heart. So God looks at your heart. And we see Jesus had a beautiful heart. So the next verse Isaiah 53, 3, he was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. So first of all, he was despised and forsaken. Jesus was not liked. He was not liked. Some of you can relate to that, either in your workplace or on social media or when you were a child or in your family, if you're the black sheep. Jesus knows what it's like to not be liked. I know what it's like to not be liked. For most of my elementary, junior high, high school years, I was not liked. And I know what that feels like. And you probably know what it feels like too. Jesus was not liked. And the second half of that verse shows us that Jesus understood sadness. The word sorrows in Isaiah 53.3 in the Hebrew, it means grief pain or sorrow. And there are seasons that we go through sorrow. When we've lost someone, when we're overwhelmed, overworked, if we're depressed, there are seasons that we go through sorrow. Jesus understands sorrow. That word grief, it's interesting to study Isaiah 53 in the Hebrew because some of the words aren't translated exactly like we would translate it. That word grief really means sickness, means malady, anxiety. The root word means to be rubbed or worn. So if you have pain in your body, Jesus understands. He was human. I mean, he lived to 33, but he probably had a cold. Probably stumped his toe and had some bee stings maybe and, and might have had some bone issues. We don't know, but he knows pain. I mean, if a baby is born, you pinch them. They know pain. Jesus had skin. He knew pain. He understands that. Isaiah 53.3. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. So Jesus was avoided. Have you ever felt that awkward moment in a store when you see maybe a child with cerebral palsy? And you don't want to stare, but you're trying to figure out, okay, what's going on? You don't want to appear like you don't want to look at them, but your eyes really aren't sure what to do. Do I look? Do I not look? So just like this child in the wheelchair, Jesus was avoided. They didn't look. Just like this homeless man, I'm not going to look. Like one from whom mid hide their face. He was avoided. Isaiah 53, 4. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. So Jesus, he was judged. He was judged by others. The NIV commentary says the onlookers came to the grievously wrong conclusion that the servant was suffering for his own sins at the hand of God. And so have you ever had something bad go wrong in your life and you were judged? Well, she must be in sin. That's why she's sick. She must not have been feeding into her marriage. That's why her husband left her. He must not have been doing a good job at work. That's why he got fired. Her child ended up in jail because she didn't raise him the right way. Jesus was judged. And what I really don't like is when people would say, well, if they would have just X, 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 and X, then that wouldn't have happened. Jesus knows what it's like to be judged. Jesus knows what it's like to be Blamed for things that happen that's not your fault. He was stricken, smitten of God, afflicted. 
Isaiah 53, 6, B, the second half of the verse. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. So Jesus was blamed. He was blamed. So on the day of atonement, the high priest would transfer the sins of the people symbolically to a scapegoat. And Jesus was our scapegoat. A scapegoat is a person who's blamed for the wrongdoings, failures, mistakes, or faults of others. And a cross-reference would be Leviticus 16, 21 through 22. And basically, they laid their hands on this goat and confessed all the sins on the goat, and they led it away into the wilderness. And Jesus... All of our sins were laid upon him. He was blamed for our sins. He knows what it's like to be blamed for something he didn't do. That's hard. The next verse, verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted. So Jesus was burdened. There are times when we're burdened, and sometimes it might be a spiritual burden. It might be a physical burden. It might be an emotional burden for yourself or someone else, but Jesus knows what it's like to be burdened. In verse 8, the first half, it says, By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. So Jesus experienced shame. By judgment, he was taken away. Do you know what it's like to feel ashamed or embarrassed? Have you ever experienced public shame or public embarrassment? Have you ever been the target of vilification in some public manner, either at a family dinner? Have have your faults ever been pointed out (laughs) at the family dinner? Have you ever been vilified in print or on social media? Jesus knows what it's like to be publicly shamed. He knows. And then Isaiah 53, 9a, his grave was assigned with wicked men. So he was dishonored. This is a picture of a Jewish um, cemetery. I'm not sure if they call them cemeteries, but that's the equivalent. But he was dishonored. He was put with, he was put with the, the thieves and the robbers and the wicked people, <laughs> but yet he never sinned. He was dishonored. 53.10, but the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. Now, I'm not going to talk about the theological aspects of that, but what I want you to know is Jesus understands crushing grief. He was crushed and put to grief. And if you're grieving and it's crushing you, Jesus understands that. He understands grief. He's been there. And then lastly, Isaiah 53, 11, as a result of the anguish of his soul. So Jesus has been in the depths of despair. He's been to the lowest of the low. He's been at the end of his rope. He's been there. So to summarize, he was unattractive, disliked, sad, avoided, judged, blamed, burdened, shamed, dishonored. He was grieving, despairing, Can you relate to any of that? Have you ever felt those feelings or are you feeling them tonight? Jesus understands. He understands your feelings. He's able to identify with the ashamed, the unattractive, the vilified, the uneducated, the marginalized, the outcast. He was just like the very crowds he spoke about in Matthew 9.36. It says, seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. 
Jesus had compassion on them because he was them. I have a mentor who helped me to see that. He had compassion on them because he was them. He was them. He was them. These are the type of people that Jesus would shy away from. But Jesus has been this type of person. And so that's why we see him going to the places of filth and dirtiness and shame. We see him talking with the woman at the well. We see him eating with thieves and robbers, tax collectors. We see him ministering at the pool of Bethesda to a man that had been laying there for many years. He went to those places where the outcasts were because he knows what that was like. And so why was Jesus willing to endure all of these things? One more scripture from Isaiah 53. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, some versions say by his stripes, we are healed. So Jesus went through all of that, all of that wealth of difficult human emotion to pay for our sins, to be our scapegoat. He did it for us. He wasn't thinking about himself. He was thinking about you. He was thinking about the Father and bridging the gap between you and the Father, paying for your sin. And another cross-reference is 1 John 2, 1 through 2. And it says, I'm writing these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not only for ours only, but also for the whole world. So Jesus paid. That's what propitiation means. It's a payment. He was the payment for our sin. But if you sin, you have an advocate. You have a lawyer. You have an eternity. I'm sorry. You do have eternity. You have an attorney in the presence of the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. That's good news. Thank you, Jesus. So I want to transition, and I want to look at a few passages from the book of John where we see Jesus' humanity as he interacts with people. So I want to start where Pastor Tom left off with Jesus the miracle worker with the story of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And so at this point, Lazarus is dead. He's in the tomb. Jesus has arrived on the scene. And it's John eleven thirty three through 35. Should be on your handout. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled, and said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So Jesus' emotional response to Mary and Martha and Lazarus can be described in these phrases or words. Deeply moved in spirit, that's one Greek word, troubled, and wept. So I want to do a little bit of word study with you so you can see what they mean. I do want to give you a couple other versions of John eleven thirty three. 33. The New Living Translation says, When Jesus saw her weeping, a deep anger welled up within him. And he was deeply troubled. In the Holman, I think it's the Holman Christian Standard Bible, HCSB. For, for my, from my research, the Holman is the most accurate representation of what the words really mean in the Greek. I can study it in the Greek and then go look at all the translations, and Holman just hits it every time. So it's a great translation. It says, he was angry in his spirit and deeply moved. So the NIV commentary says, up until seeing Mary, Jesus had been perfectly calm, completely in command. But when he saw Mary crushed with sorrow and then all the mourners, he was moved with deep emotion. So let's look at that first word, deeply moved. And y'all should just be thankful I'm not trying to tell you the Greek words because this is a long one and I couldn't say it. But this word means being moved with anger. We're going to talk a little more next week about Jesus being angry. But being moved with anger 
or indignation. So why would Jesus have been angry? I mean, shouldn't he have been sad? And he was sad, but he was also angry. Perhaps he was expressing his resentment at the ravages of sin, the death that had come in at the Garden of Eden. That was not the original plan. Death is the enemy, and Satan uses the fear of death as a terrible weapon. Hebrews 2.15 is a cross-reference, and it's talking about Jesus. It says that he might free those who through the fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. The fear of death keeps us in slavery. And Jesus was probably angry because there was death on the earth. So Jesus was troubled. That word means to agitate or trouble, to affect with great pain or sorrow. He was agitated. He was deeply moved on the inside. And then lastly, Jesus wept. So what was it, again, that moved him to tears? Because he wasn't quite at the tomb. So this little verse, Jesus wept, trivia, is the shortest verse in the Bible. It's one of the most powerful verses in the Bible. And this word wept, which means to weep, is the only time this Greek word is used in the New Testament. The commentator, Warren Wearsby, says, why did he weep at all? I mean, Jesus knew that Lazarus was going to be raised from the dead. Why did he cry? Our Lord's weeping reveals the humanity of the Savior. He has entered into all of our experiences, and he knows how we feel. He experienced these things in a deeper way, in fact, because he was also God. His tears assure us of his sympathy. He's indeed a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. But I think that You know, Jesus knew he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead, but I think when he saw Mary's sorrow, that's what moved him. Often when you go to a funeral, if you're not part of the immediate family or a close friend, usually you're kind of composed. But when you see the family have an open expression of grief, when you see them crying, if you hear them sobbing, you cry. You cry with them. And I believe Jesus was crying with Mary. We're no different. Because when we hurt, Jesus hurts. When we're grieving, Jesus grieves. He feels it. He knows what it feels like. He was crying with Mary. So I want to look at another instance that talks about Jesus being troubled. So if you'll turn with me to John 12. And again, we are skipping around some in the book of John because this is more a topical study and not a line-by-line, chapter-by-chapter study. So the context here, John 12, this is after Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem, but right before the Last Supper with his disciples. Jesus knows what's coming up. He knows that he's going to be betrayed and killed, and he's foretelling his death. So if you'll um, start with verse 27, and we'll read through 28. He says, Now my soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came out of heaven. I have glor- both glorified it and will glorify it, glorify it again. Another translation is the, um, the N-E-T. It says, now my soul is greatly distressed. Have you ever been greatly distressed about your future? Perhaps you have to have a root canal. I don't like dental procedures. I, I, take a, I have to have a little bit of medication to get through because I've had a bad experience. It takes a lot to get me in a dental chair for there to be a drill involved. But sometimes we dread things, maybe a court date, maybe a confrontation with your boss, maybe a doctor's visit, maybe your child going off to college. We dread things. Jesus was distressed about his future. He was God, yes, but he was man, and he dreaded, dreaded. 
what was about to take place. The NIV commentary says, when Jesus speaks these words publicly in the period of crisis, he indicates that he's breaking under the strain. The dangers and irrationality of it all are overwhelming him. But Jesus wanted the Father's name to be glorified no matter what the cost. Wearsby says, note that Jesus did not say, what shall I do? Because he knew what he was ordained to do. But he said, what shall I say? What shall I say? Sometimes when we're in that time of trial, we get angry at God. I'm guilty as charged. I've been there and done it. But Jesus said, what shall I say? Wearsby goes on to say, in the hour of suffering and surrender, there are only two prayers we can pray. You can either pray, Father, save me, or Father, glorify your name. Glorify your name. So we see here Jesus revealing where he needed strength publicly. He revealed his weakness. So there are times to be authentic, times to keep silent. But what about the situations where you're like Jesus, facing something you dread? What do you pray? What do you pray? Do you pray, Father, save me from this hour? That's what I would pray. But I think Jesus gives us an example. Perhaps we can pray like Jesus prayed and pray that the Father would be glorified through it. Sometimes we want to be delivered from things when the Father wants to be glorified through them. In our flesh, we want to be delivered. But the Father wants glory. Like that man born blind from birth. The Father received glory through that. So it's hard, but we should be like Jesus. That's the example. That's the standard. That we would want the Father's name to be glorified no matter what the cost. I think you see that with martyrs laying down their lives. For the Father's name to be glorified no matter what the cost. So lastly, I want to look at a few accounts of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. There are three accounts of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's not in John. It's not at all in John. But this is after the Last Supper. And we'll see next week especially that Jesus developed a muscle of getting alone and praying. Because he knew what he was facing. So let's look first at Matthew 26, 36 through 38. Is that on your handout? Okay, great. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane. That word means oil press. It was a place of pressing. He said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and distressed. And he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. So these words, distressed, grieved, they mean to be very heavy, exceedingly sorrowful, distressed in mind. Luke twenty-two forty-one through 44. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and began to pray, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. He needed strength. He was strengthened. I love that. And being in agony, verse 44, he was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. And then the last passage would be Mark 14.33. It says, he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be very distressed and troubled. That word very distressed means to throw into terror. To throw into terror. 
We don't often think about Jesus as being afraid, but Jesus has experienced everything we have yet without sin. I believe he knows what it's like to feel terror. So I'm going to summarize these three passages together with the five W's and an H. Who? Jesus. What? He prayed that God would remove the cup from him. When? This is after the Passover dinner. Where? The Garden of Gethsemane. How? This is, what, what, this is where we relate. He did it privately. He did it kneeling in agony, fervently, sweating blood, grieving, distressed, troubled, and with angels strengthening him. So do you feel like Jesus can relate to you when you're dreading something? Jesus knows what that's like. Why did he do it? Because he was human. Why did he feel all of those things? Because he's human. Because his soul was grieved to the point of death. But he's human. That's why. That's, that's, that's why he felt all of those things. But his choice was, Luke 22:42 Father if you're willing remove this cup from me yet not my will but yours be done. Again, Jesus is our example. It's not about us. It's about God and it's about other people. It's not about us. It's about God and other people. Jesus was at his breaking point. He was pushed as far as a human could be pushed. He was pushed as far as a human could be pushed. And he cried out to the Father to move that mountain. But he had a choice. He had a choice. And he chose the Father's will. He had a choice to either fulfill his purpose or abort the mission. And he chose. I mean, I believe he had a choice because he's a human. And do you have free will? Do you have choices? I do too. And I believe Jesus had a choice. And he said, Father, not my will, but yours be done. So application, there are going to be times when you get to your breaking point. What can you do? Well, you can ask friends to come alongside you and pray. They weren't very faithful in their praying. They went to sleep. But you can ask. You can ask God to send angels to strengthen you. If you have weakness, if you have areas where you need strength, ask God to send his ministering spirits, his angels, to strengthen you. And then submit your will to God. So why does it all matter? Why does it matter that Jesus experienced the gamut of human emotion? It matters because of Hebrews 7.25, the last stop in the Hebrews road. Therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus knows how to pray for you. He knows. He knows. If you're a widow, you may think other widows know how to pray for you, but Jesus knows. If you're lonely, you may think that other people that are lonely know how to pray, but Jesus knows. If you've been rejected, Jesus knows. If you're grieving, Jesus knows. If you're dreading something, Jesus knows. He knows how to pray for you, and he always lives. I like to say it's his full-time job. Some of us keep him busier than others. But Jesus always lives to make intercession for you. That's the end of that Hebrews road. I mean, it goes on. But still, that's within the context of the book of Hebrews that Jesus can sympathize with our weaknesses. He's been tempted. He was made like us in everything. He can deal with the ignorant and misguided. There's a throne of grace drawn near with confidence, and he's praying for you. And I pray that that gives you hope. Jesus, I thank you. <laughs> you could have chosen another way. You could have chosen another way, but you chose to put God into frail humanity and come to the earth and experience what it's like to be battered with temptation and sin, to be hurt by others, to live in a body that breaks down, 
to experience dread of, of future situations. But Jesus, you did it all without sin. You kept your eyes on the Father and you kept your heart towards the people because other people mattered more. And I pray, Jesus, that, that <laughs> you would help us to kill our flesh and help us live to glorify God and to love others, to love God, to love people, to walk in the Spirit. That is our heart, and it's hard. But Jesus, you know how to help us because you've been us. You've been us. So I just thank you for that. I pray that these that are here tonight would go home encouraged. And I pray that if there's anyone that hasn't accepted Jesus as their Savior, that they would come see Pastor Tom, Pastor Terry, or me afterwards and learn what it means to have a Savior who died to pay for our sins. And I pray that if there are any that, that don't know Jesus as this high priest that paid for all of their sin, he had, one, he had one sacrifice. He paid one sacrifice for all sin for all time. I pray that they would come to know you, Jesus, as their high priest, as the one who paid, it, paid for it all, and they don't have to pay for it again and again. I thank you for tonight and for these that came and for their attention in Jesus' name. Amen. I've, not, uh, I've been a Christian a long time. I've never heard an in-depth study like that before. I don't know about you, but for, it just hit me in a lot of places. For Jesus to be thrown into terror, that's, uh, that's a huge temptation. That's why the angels had to come. So I was like, wow. I don't know. I really, it really helps me. I, I, I just that he, he, has, he has our back. He understands. Amen. That's good. Well, let's stand. We'll be dismissed tonight. And Lord, thank you for the word. Um, the reason you put all that to print was so that we would have a revelation. of John said the reason he wrote this was that we might believe and have eternal life. So we thank you, Lord, that you wrote it all down, that we get to understand. And, and we, can get, we can cry out to you, do you really understand, Lord? Yes, I do. So thank you for tonight. Lord, give us peace in every battleground. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you all for coming.